0: Hello everyone, Trish Geis here, divorce and premediation coach. Welcome to Shit I Learned From My Divorce, a show where I share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what I learned from my divorce. Twelve years of trying to live my life while my former partner was trying to destroy it. Trish Guise is not a legal professional, nor a licensed mental health professional. The information she provides is not intended to be legal advice and is intended only for informational and entertainment purposes. Some of the topics on the show may be triggering for some, so please use caution and your own discretion. Topics discussed on the show may not be suitable for young children. I do this show for a couple of very important reasons. The first one being that I feel we need to normalize the behaviors and the craziness that occur during a separation and divorce. It's helpful for both the people going through a divorce and those around them to understand what to expect and how to handle it. Going through a divorce is like nothing else that you will ever experience in life. Number 2. I want to prompt you to start thinking about things in a different manner so you don't have to make the same mistakes I did. I also hope to fill some of the knowledge gaps you may have and provide you with some ideas or solutions for what is troubling you at the moment. And most importantly, I would love for you to walk away from each episode just a little bit stronger, feeling a bit more validated and a little more settled because you have a bit of knowledge in your toolkit. So I recommend after listening to each episode, take a few minutes and think about what you've heard. What resonated with you? Do some things seem a bit more clear to you now? Or do you need to do a bit more digging? The whole purpose of my show is to get you to see things, perhaps in a different light, or for you to slow down or step back a little bit, and make sure that you're clear about what you're doing, but more importantly, why you're doing it, as opposed to reacting. Okay, with that in mind, let's get on with the show. Hello everyone, Trish Geis here, Divorce and Premediation Coach. Welcome back to Shit I Learned From My Divorce. A show where I share with you the good, the bad, and the ugly of what I learned from my divorce. 12 years of trying to live my life while my ex was trying to destroy it. On tonight's show, I'd like to talk about parents behaving badly. Now, most of the behaviors I'll be talking about, I'd like to think that it's pretty obvious to most people that the behavior is flat out wrong. But unfortunately, knowing the behavior is wrong doesn't seem to be enough of a deterrent for some parents. So in light of that, what I'd also like to talk about today is what happens to kids and what it feels like when they see their parents behaving in certain ways. Some people need to know why something is wrong before they accept the fact that the behavior is wrong and that they shouldn't do it. And then there are some people who feel that none of these reasons are compelling enough to stop engaging in this behavior. The problem is the vast majority of these people who engage in bad behavior aren't fazed by how their behavior affects others, even if it hurts their own children. Their primary motivation is how something will benefit or hurt them. And them only. For these people, I will turn my attention towards the recent amendments made to Canada's Divorce Act in March of 2021. Amendments that finally give more direction to judges when making parenting and contact orders. The courts must now solely focus on what is in the best interest of the child. Their primary consideration has to be for the child's physical, emotional, and psychological safety, security, and well-being. No longer is it about the parent's right to have time with the child. It's finally about the child's right to be in a safe, loving, secure environment. No longer is the presumption that it's better for a child to have a relationship with both parents, regardless of abuse or neglect. Briefly, here are some of the things that courts are required to consider when making parenting and contact decisions. They need to consider each parent's willingness to support the development and maintenance of the child's relationship with the other parent. Another relevant factor Are any civil or criminal proceedings, orders, conditions, or measures relevant to the safety and well-being of the child? Any instances of family violence and their impact? And the best part is, is that these amendments go one step further and clearly outline the factors relating to family violence that courts must consider. Courts now finally must take into account any instances of coercive control in relation to a family member. This is absolutely crucial because it gives credence to the fact that even when children are indirectly exposed to coercive control and abuse, it is very harmful to them. The amendments also require consideration of whether the family violence causes the child or any other family member to fear for their own safety or for that of someone else. So now the threat of harm is recognized as harmful to the child, regardless of whether the abuse happens directly to them. We no longer have to wait now until the threats come to fruition threats are enough. Courts now are empowered to try and prevent these threats from becoming reality. The courts are now expected to follow that famous saying of when a person tells you who they really are, you should probably believe them. In looking at some cases that have gone through the courts following the Divorce Act Amendments, I'm highly encouraged that the new amendments are being followed and changes are happening and families will be better off because of these changes. And I hope this continues. And I hope... In future, what we see is a little bit more prevention so that when abusers start seeing that there are consequences for their actions, that they think twice about behaving badly. Now, I realize that's probably a pipe dream, but at least finally we have a stronger legal mechanism in place that will assist in trying to protect children from harm. And I have a little bit more hope for parents who are trying to do just that. So in other words, if abusers can't or won't change their behavior, the courts now have the power to do it for them. Prior to March 2021, parents had very little hope of protecting their children from abusive behavior because the courts weren't really well equipped to do anything about this behavior in my opinion. When I say not well equipped, what I really mean is that the courts weren't given the okay to go ahead and do something about the abuse. You know, but unless they were living under a rock, the courts knew full well for years that this behavior was harmful to children because medical and psychological research has been calling these behaviors dangerous for years. The problem was it can be difficult for the courts to discern what is fact and what is fiction when it comes to abuse, especially with coercive control. It also can be difficult for the courts to determine who really is at fault because coercive controllers are extremely adept at presenting themselves as the victims and painting the safe parent as the perpetrator. What would often occur is courts would end up labeling parents as high conflict and faulting both of them equally for the situation, essentially telling both of them that they both misbehaved You're both at fault, and you guys need to figure out a way to get along. Now, not only is that one of the most tone-deaf things a court can do, but by ruling as such, they unwittingly become complicit in further abuse. Without properly assessing accountability, without handing consequences to the abuser, the courts effectively engage in their own form of abuse. Blaming the victim, gaslighting the victim, and essentially giving the true abuser carte blanche to continue the abuse and ramp it up if they like. In other cases, the courts have accurately ascertained who the true perpetrator was, but failed in providing a proper remedy. Often all the perpetrator received was a bit of finger wagging or maybe a tongue lashing, having their behavior admonished and a stern warning not to behave like this again. As you can imagine, that always fell on deaf ears. You know, and it always has boggled my mind that the courts actually think that their voice means anything to the abuser. Because let's be honest, if an abuser Doesn't give a shit about what their kids think. Do you honestly think they are going to care what a stranger thinks, whether they're a judge or not? I know this all too well because this is exactly what happened in our case. In the hopes of bolstering his case, my ex demanded the kids be giving their own lawyers. But I and the chambers judge put a stop to that. Instead, he demanded a voice of a child report to be conducted, hoping it would prove that the children didn't want to have anything to do with me and as such, I should not have any parenting time. But what he didn't account for was that our judge was well-versed in alienating and coercive control behaviors. So much so that the judge called our voice of a child report the voice of a dad report because it was so obvious that the dad had heavily influenced what the children were saying. The judge also acknowledged that my ex had engaged in egregious alienation for the past 10 years. So imagine my surprise and my relief after hearing all of that, thinking finally the tides have turned and finally someone in the system was going to protect the children and I from abuse, but I'm afraid those hopes were dashed. Unfortunately, all my ex received was a stern warning from the judge saying that if he behaved this way again in the future, he ran the risk of being found in contempt, huge letdown. The one person who had the duty to act in the best interest of my children and had the power to do so, did absolutely nothing to change the situation. No, scratch that, he did change the situation. What he did is made it easier for my ex to continue the abusive behavior and in fact, ramp it up because my ex knew full well that no matter what he did, he would not be suffering any consequences. And this went on until January of last year. So January, 2021, when I finally was able to go no contact. Unfortunately though, his behavior towards the children hasn't improved and they still are left to navigate the course of control all by themselves. Some people have said to me, don't worry, they're over 18. They'll be able to handle it. They can do their own thing. They don't have to listen to him. But you know, people seem to think that something magical happens at the age of 18, like all of a sudden they're going to know how to navigate the pressures that their father puts on them and they're going to know how to handle it and not worry about whether or not he will shut his love off. So, Consequently, they still live at their father's house because they know how aggressively he will react if they ever move back here. I just had a discussion with one of my children about that the other day. I think it's a safe assumption based on the fact that when my kids had mentioned their interest in moving out with friends in the past, their father freaked out. People always think the hardest part of my situation was seeing my ex-husband get away with his behavior and not suffer any consequences. But in actuality, the hardest part isn't that he didn't suffer any consequences. The hardest part is that our kids are the ones who suffered the greatest consequences and now as young adults they're left to undo all of that damage on their own. So many professionals along the way try to convince me hey, don't worry, the kids are resilient and once they turn 18, they'll be able to get away from the abuse and they'll be fine. I've just chalked all that up now to if that's what they need to think in order to sleep at night, knowing full well they did nothing to help us, then so be it. But I know everything they've told me was BS and unfortunately I was right because I still see it to this day and they are still struggling. I just want to drive a point home before we kind of get into the meat of things today. I want to talk about the behaviors that hopefully you nor your ex will engage in and why they're important. Put yourself in your kid's shoes for a second, okay? You're a kid, doing kid things, going to school, playing with friends, spending time with family. Your life has a bit of a rhythm and routine to it. Then one day, everything you've ever known and are used to is now shattered. Mom and dad aren't going to live in the same house anymore. And you now have to go between mom's house and dad's house. You have two different houses to live in, and you notice something. They're called mom's house and dad's house, not so-and-so's house, not your house. So it starts to feel like you don't have a real home anymore. And it gets confusing. You don't know which house you're going to be at when. So when your friends ask you to play or come to a birthday party, you can never just say yes. Or I'll just check with mom. You have to check with mom, check with dad. You can't remember where you're going to be. And sometimes, depending on where you are, you may not be allowed to go. Then you can't always find your favorite game or your stuffy because you've probably left it at your other house. And so now you're having to learn a whole new way to live all over again. While at the same time, your friends are carrying on with the lives they've always had. And then it gets worse because one of their parents starts saying bad things about the other and is angry all the time and starts telling you all about it. So now, instead of your old job of just being a kid, doing kid things, learning, developing, exploring, enjoying life in a safe, secure, loving environment, your job has changed now to tap dance around your parents' mood swings and crazy outlandish demands all of a sudden now you're like the parent and you have to take care of your parent when they feel sad and lonely and now all of a sudden you have to prove your love and devotion to a parent because they're so desperate for validation let's remember none of our kids have asked for their lives to be upended like this but they all try their best to adapt in fact they can adapt quite nicely if their needs continue to be met compared to some parents needs kids needs are pretty simple They need to feel safe, feel loved, need to feel worthy, need to feel seen and heard. In fact, you can probably relate. Don't we really all have the same needs? Okay, now let's turn our attention to behaviors that I associate with parents behaving badly. As we move along through the different behaviors, I really want you to listen in two different ways. First of all, take note of the behaviors so you know what to watch out for when you're trying to protect your children, but also, Listen to analyze your own behavior to ensure you aren't inadvertently doing some of these same things. And listen, we're all guilty of this. Nobody gave us a driver's handbook on how to parent, much less how to parent during a divorce. So we're bound to make mistakes. This is the time for you to listen and learn not to beat yourself up, not to feel guilty. Just take it as food for thought and pivot is after today's show, what I really want you to start doing is parenting just a little differently. I want you to start parenting with intention. Go beyond just trying to get them to school on time and get their homework done. I want you to use this information we'll be talking about today to think long and hard about what you want to demonstrate to your children about character, values, and integrity. I want you to start parenting not from a reactionary standpoint, meaning in reaction to whatever your ex does or doesn't do, feeling like you have to compensate for their behavior or lack thereof. I want you to start being intentional about what kind of parent you want to be, regardless of the circumstances. That is truly your best hope at getting your children and yourself through this divorce alive and well. Okay, now on to the behaviors. Refusing to communicate with the other parent and using the excuse that it's because you're always stirring up conflict. This is a common excuse used by people who are trying to manipulate things. They project, they're the ones usually that are stirring up conflict. And anytime you don't acquiesce or agree with or comply with their demands, there you go. You're stirring up conflict. And typically what these people like to do is they want to bombard with texts, emails, phone calls. They prefer phone calls and voicemails. They are usually quite against using a court approved app like Our Family Wizard, um, which is a great communication tool that uh, keeps everything in one place and also has something called a tonometer that if the tone of the email is such that it's abusive, derogatory, it will prevent you from sending it before you have changed the tone. Uh, That's just one of many apps. I just happen to like that one. That's the one I'm most familiar with. The problem is, is that We all can be guilty of wanting to not communicate with the other parent or refusing to. And sometimes there are legitimate reasons for this. However, reality is such that if you are sharing a child until a court order says differently, you're going to have to communicate with that individual. But there are ways to protect yourself. You know, you don't need to be jumping to every message. You don't have to even check your messages all day long. Shut off your notifications. Even if it's an emergency, you don't have to attend to it, the, the email right away, because Let's be honest, everything to them sometimes is an emergency. They want to disrupt your life at times, so don't allow it to happen. Maybe pick a certain time of day. That's the only time you will check your messages. And keep in mind, as I've said in previous shows, you don't need to answer right away. It doesn't matter how many times they bombard you. You just need to communicate in the way that suits you. Number two, putting your needs ahead of your kids' needs. A good indicator that a parent is more concerned about their own needs rather than their child's is looking at their complaints. Their complaints are always about what the other parent is doing. Like, I don't like the tone of his or her email. Whereas a healthy parent will complain about their behavior and its effect on the children. Raising children is one of the most important things a human being can do in this world. I'm really hard pressed to think of a job that's more difficult, more taxing, more demanding, more important than raising children. And for most of us, it's a given that as parents, we're supposed to put the needs of our children ahead of our own. However, there are many people who are incapable of doing so. And in my experience, there is always a tell. When your ex brings up an issue with you or presents it at mediation, parent coordination, or in an affidavit, pay particular attention to two things. Number one, who is the victim to the behavior they're complaining about? Or who does the alleged behavior negatively affect? And number two, what remedy do they suggest? What you'll notice is that their complaints aren't about something you did to the children or something that you've done affects the children. It will often be something you said or did to the parent and something that only affects the other parent. Like I mentioned before, I didn't like the tone, didn't like the words they used. They weren't being very cooperative. They're always stirring up conflict. Very rarely is it about anything to do with the children. I'll give you a couple of examples from my own life. My ex and I both requested a parenting coordinating session because we both had issues to raise. My issues were he was refusing to allow the children to bring their items back and forth between our houses. He was sharing very inappropriate information with the kids about our divorce and seeking advice from them and talking to them as if they were his friends. And he was not following doctor advice for the treatment of our children, okay? His issues were He didn't like the tone of one of my emails, and he was accusing me of bullying him into using the Our Family Wizard app for communication between us instead of using phone calls and texts. And this is after having our parent coordinator be the one to strongly suggest and encourage us to use OFW because he finds that is the most effective way of communicating in highly contentious cases such as ours. Did you notice the difference in the issues that were presented? Mine were about how the children were affected and the behavior towards the children. His were about me and how I was hurting him. Now, I'll give you an example about remedies. So the remedies for this situation I suggested were to simply allow the children to bring their items and clothing back and forth between the houses whenever they wanted. And if there is something of importance moving between homes and a parent was concerned about it, they could communicate to the other parent about it. Fairly simple. Also, refrain from discussing adult issues with the kids. Again, very simple and common sense. And lastly, follow the doctor's orders to ensure that the kids were getting proper care. Simple, logical, right? Okay, his remedies. First thing, costs. He wanted and felt I needed to be punished. And the only way he could think of to punish me was to have me pay his costs. Nothing to do with changing any behavior that affected the kids. And that was a pattern that repeated itself over and over and over. Every time he didn't like something I said or I didn't capitulate to his demands, that's what happened. So to summarize, healthy parents focus on behavior and how it affects children, and they suggest remedies that will solve the problem. Whereas unhealthy parents focus on what is being done to them and suggest remedies that are punitive and they have no bearing typically on anyone's behavior. Behavior number three, Words don't match your actions. A common tactic for an unhealthy parent is to appear very cooperative in email communication or at mediation or sometimes even parent coordination session. They'll agree to proposals because yes, they agree. It is in the best interest of the child, only to turn around and completely disregard the agreement. It took me quite a while to recognize this manipulative tactic. It took me longer than I'd actually like to admit to realize that my ex never intended on following through with any of our agreements. His only intent was to deceive or simply end the session. And as soon as the ink was dry on the agreement, he would do whatever he wanted. There were some times where he couldn't even go 24 hours after signing an agreement before he breached it. There isn't one item in any of our agreements that he hasn't breached. And that is not an exaggeration. So my points are this. If you fully intend to disregard your agreement after making it, just say so. And don't bother agreeing to anything. If you think what you're doing is right, then don't hide behind deceit. You're not helping and nor fooling anyone when you make an agreement then renege the minute the deal is done. That does not help the children and will not help your case going forward. When entering into any type of agreement with your ex regardless of the level of cooperation or conflict, I strongly suggest you think about putting in some type of clause that deals with breach of your agreement. One of my favorites that I use is an indemnity clause that states if at any time any party must incur costs to uphold this agreement, the other party shall be responsible for all costs. That is much different than normal allocation of costs, which is on a solicitor-client basis. I would consider looking at every single item on every agreement. Now I say remedy, but in this case, what I really mean is consequence because a true remedy um, really depends on the situation and you really want to fix the situation. But in cases whereby the other party is not willing to do what it takes and they're not willing to follow the agreement, In my opinion, it's best to have written in the contract a very clear consequence that is attainable to hopefully prevent breaching of the contract and the agreements, but also to change behavior in the event that they don't change it on their own. And if you're worried that your ex is going to balk at these suggestions, you know, you're in mediation, you think, oh, I know they're going to hate this. That should be a red flag because it should really be irrelevant what the consequence is if you have no intention of breaking that agreement. Behavior number four. This one is something that really, really bothers me because it happens so frequently and it was just so ridiculous. Refusing to allow children to bring their own items back and forth between houses or disallowing them to wear clothes from one house to the other house. I mean, even as I say it, it sounds so ludicrous. It's such a controlling thing to do and such a dangerous thing to do to children's minds. Children are told things like, these things that I buy for you are so expensive and I don't want you to take them to the other house. Your, in my case, your mother doesn't take very good care of other people's things. So your items aren't safe over there. And I don't want any stuff from there coming here because the stuff from over there that she buys you is old and it's just junk. So what I buy you stays here and what she buys you stays over there. I can't imagine being a kid and being told that. My kids were told that every single week. So the message to the kids is that everyone associated with mom, her house, what she buys you, anything to do with her is inferior And in some cases, maybe unsafe. So what ends up happening is that kids can react in a couple of different ways. Some may actually believe it and internalize these beliefs, or they may not agree and may not believe what that parent is saying, but they'll become very resentful and very angry because there's not a whole lot they can do about it. They'll start to feel like, well, I guess nothing belongs to me then. And they don't really feel like they can belong anywhere because everything is controlled by that one parent. Some other cases too, they might start believing that the things parents do and for their kids and give to their kids all come at a price. Or as my kids say, everything comes with strings attached. They start thinking and start believing that relationships are transactional and they could grow up thinking that and enter in their own relationships and act as if everything is transactional. You owe me because I did X for you. In other cases, some kids resort to hiding items in their bags or even in their pants to take back and forth to their house. So now they're having to sneak around and hide things and keep secrets on something they shouldn't have to do. So, but if you're successful like I was, along with my parent coordinator, in convincing your ex that the kids should be free to move their possessions freely from house to house, you still need to be on the lookout for some other problems. I think it's safe to say that any parent who forbids their child from taking their belongings to another person's house, won't be happy if you force them to change their ways. In our case, he allowed the kids to bring items back and forth finally, but they paid the price for it. Every time he picked them up from our house, the kids would go out to the car with their bags packed, only to race back in after a short conversation with their dad. They wouldn't say a word, they'd shoot upstairs to their room, grab something they forgot, and bolt out the door without saying a word. Turns out my ex would grill the kids and ask them the minute he saw them if they were remembered to pack all the items that belonged at his place. This didn't just apply to toys, but to clothes as well. At one point, it got so bad that the kids would have to remember what they wore to our place eight days previous and remember to wear it back to their dad's house when he picked them up. It was ridiculous and stressful watching it. I can't imagine what it was like to actually experience it. When I look back now, That seems to be the time when my kids' anxiety started to really ramp up. Bad behavior number five. When kids forget an item at the other parent's house, don't make them pay for it. When kids' items are forgotten at the other parent's house, please make every effort to promptly deliver that item to the other house for the child to use. This is not something that you need to use as a vehicle to teach them about responsibility. They have enough on their plate to worry about what to bring to what house and where is it. We all do that. If we had to pack our bags every week, like I did, when we first started this whole separation, we were nesting. It is hard as an adult to remember everything. Kids don't have the capacity sometimes. Don't punish them for forgetting it or accuse them of not taking good care of it. And please, for the love of God, don't drop it off at school unless that's where they need it. It's mortifying and embarrassing for kids to be called to the school office all the time to pick up their forgotten items. And truly, the office staff don't appreciate that either. One way to prevent kids from forgetting all the time is to be the adult and help them through this process. You can help them remember by perhaps coming up with a list for them. I did that with the kids and we had a laminated list and then sometimes we had a whiteboard so the list could change and they could check that off the night before and... They had no problems remembering things, whether it was just for school or for a sleepover at their grandparents' house or to go to their dad's. Another way is to have two sets of small ticket items. So you have the small ticket items at mom's house and small ticket items at dad's house. But the larger ticket items usually have to be shared because of high costs. And parents are really strongly encouraged to be cooperative when it comes to allowing the child to have their skis, their skates, whatever it is go back and forth, unless you want to drop a lot of money and buy two of each item. Last bit of advice, when you drop the item off at the other parent's house, please let them know. I mean, you think that would be a no-brainer. Don't sneak up to the house, drop it quietly on the front doorstep, not ring the doorbell, not say hello to your kids, and slink away, and then nobody knows about it until they go outside to go play and they see it on the doorstep. It's rude, it's, it's dismissive, it's disrespectful. Just don't do it. Bad behavior number six, I believe it is. Please do not use your kids as messengers. Do not use them as a emotional crutch. Do not use them as a friend. Don't make arrangements with the kids instead of arranging it with the other parent. Don't say to your kids, figure it out with mom, figure it out with dad whenever you guys wanna do it. Do not do that. Chances are you wouldn't have done that when you were together, you don't do it now. That puts them in an adult position and also puts them in a loyalty conflict. Now they have to please two people, one of them perhaps being unreasonable. One way to get around this is to do what we did, do weekly transition reports. So you can do this in your app, your communication app, or just email it, however you communicate. And I would do a template app. So you'd have uh, school events, uh, sport events, um, extracurricular, medical, school, birthday parties, whatever, and just use that template to write down any pertinent information that the other parent should know. Do not rely on your child to tell the other parent. They can't remember some days just like we can't what happened from one day to the next, let alone one week to the next. And really that's the parent's job, not the child's job. I would also specify a response timeframe. So when should you respond by? So it looks to me like we're coming to the end of our time together today. And I don't even think I'm halfway through my list. So we will have a part two next week of parents behaving badly. So as we end our time together tonight, I want to remind you that from this day forward, I really want you to be intentional with your parenting. Remember that our children are always watching and our primary job is to teach our children how to be good human beings. So you need to be intentional about your message, your words, and your actions. You don't want to be reactionary. It's hard not to be, but go forward in parenting, in being the kind of parent who you've always wanted to be or who you were, regardless of your present circumstances. Shit I Learned From My Divorce is written and produced by me, Trish Geis, with producer Barry Geis. Audio editing and sound design is by Barry Geis. I would love to have you tell a friend or family member about this podcast, and you can help me share the important concepts I talk about by leaving a rating and review of shit I learned from my divorce on Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. To stay up to date on the latest from me or to contact me, visit my website, trishguise.com. That's T-R-I-S-H-G-U-I-S-E.com. You can also find me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trish Guys and Facebook and Instagram at Trish Guys Divorce Coach. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. This has been Shit I Learned from My Divorce with me, Trish Guys Divorce and Premediation Coach. Until next time, take good care of yourself, your kids and your pets. And remember to try and have a little fun, even when things are really crummy, because life is too short to stay in the crummy.